This morning we continue in our series from Luke on the Word Made Flesh, moving into Luke chapter 2. And I in, intended, or I guess I included verse 21 in the, in the pericope in the section of Scripture to look at, but in reality I think I'm going to wait until next week to look at verse 21. So we'll focus on verses 1 to 20. I'll read those for uh, our Scripture reading. We'll continue examining how the Word comes and how Luke portrays how the Word comes to us as we continue in Luke chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 20. Let me read those for us. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them. In the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and errant word. Again, may he write it upon our hearts this morning. As we go before the word, let me once again pray for us. Father in heaven, now we come to this part of our worship time, our worship service, where we come before your word. We ask that you would speak to us, that you would fulfill the promise that you have made, that when your word goes out, it does not return to you void, but instead accomplishes everything that you purpose for it. It's successful in the things for which you send it. For us here this morning, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us in abundance, that our ears might be opened and our eyes might be opened to hear and see the things that you have for us this morning from your word. Make it, we ask, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we may walk according to what it teaches us. 
We do ask this in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, so far in this series, we've talked about how the Word comes in three ways. It comes with power. It comes to reveal. It comes as a word of revelation. And it's a compelling word. It comes compelling a response from those who hear it. And we saw all three of these things in various ways in the stories of the word coming to both Zechariah and Mary. And what stood out, at least for me, in those two stories was the different ways in which Zechariah and Mary responded. Zechariah responded at first with doubt and was disciplined for it. Saw God's word being fulfilled as his wife conceived, bore a son, confirmed the son's name as John, his faith having been strengthened by the Lord God. Mary, by contrast, responded from the beginning with faith. Trust, a deep, simple trust in the Lord God. And we learned valuable lessons from each story, from each of those main characters. Now, when it comes to stories, we can look at stories from different perspectives, different ways to analyze what's going on in the story and what the meaning of the story is. You might remember that from high school English and all the fun that that was. We can look at the context. A love story set in England in the 1800s, in Victorian England, is different from a love story set in the same time period in the 1800s in the Old West in America. Two different cultures, two different things going on. A love story in ancient Greece is different. Or in Old Testament Israel. Look at the story of Ruth, for example. Love story makes us think of different genres of stories. A love story is different from a comedy, which is different from a drama, which is different from a mystery, which is different from a hero's journey. You can look at the language, the way the story is told. Is it told in prose? Is it told in poetry? Is the language high and glorious and wonderful, or is it simple and low? Is it Shakespeare? Is it Mark Twain? Both are great stories, great storytelling. We can look at the symbolism used, the gold coin nailed to the mast in Moby Dick. We can look at story length. It could be a short story. It could be a long story. But another way of looking at stories is to examine the characters. Any decent story has good characters. Bad stories have bad characters. Vanilla characters, boring characters. Good characters make all the difference. You can tell that on TV. One drama succeeds versus another. One mystery succeeds versus another, mainly because of the characters involved and the way they're portrayed. And what I want to do this morning is look at this story of the birth of Jesus in a little bit of a different way than probably any of us have looked at it before, and that's by looking at the characters involved, particularly the human characters. The word is born here in this section of Luke. The word is born as a baby, the baby Jesus, born of Mary. And as he's born, his birth is accompanied with words of praise and glory from men and from angels. At the heart of this story, 
is that family, Mary and Joseph and the, and the baby who was born. Close to the heart of that story, in the same region it says, are the shepherds. They're right there close by what's going on. A little bit further out, we have in verse 18, kind of the crowd, all who heard what the shepherds said. Furthest out from the story are the Roman authorities. Caesar Augustus, Governor Quirinius. Those who decreed and managed the census that sent the family to Bethlehem. I want to look at those four groups, and I'm going to work from the outside in. See what lessons we can learn along the way. As the word comes, now the word is born. And how, how does Luke show us that event and how the characters are involved and interact with that event? Well, again, the furthest from that, you've got the Romans. Caesar Augustus, Governor Quirinius. Those who doubt the Bible say this couldn't be true. Quirinius wasn't governor until later. He didn't have any registration or census until A.D. 10. However, we do know that Quirinius was governor earlier as well. And if you look at Luke's language in verse 2, he says this was the first registration. So, apparently he gave two. And this is the first one. Don't let people undermine your confidence in God's word. There's almost always a very simple explanation. But we also know this, that censuses and registrations, these things took a long time in the ancient world. We, we saw even in our Old Testament reading, David is just taking a registration, a census of that small area of Israel and Judah. It took nine months and 20 days. How long does it take to register the whole Roman world around the Mediterranean? So this could have been ongoing for quite a long time. The real interesting question is why? Why have the people register? Why take a census? For David, it was a sin. He was going against God, numbering God's innumerable people. For the Romans, it's a very simple thing. Money, taxes. It's only two things certain in life, we're told, death and taxes. And good old Caesar Augustus was in need of a lot of taxes. He ruled quite a long time, and he left his mark on history and on the Roman Empire. He's the one who really began to perfect the Roman roads and and build them, especially throughout Italy. He established a, a rapid delivery postal system, almost a Roman Pony Express, by which news could be shared around the empire much more quickly than it had been before. He established a retirement fund for soldiers. He did all sorts of things. This man is known as being a great leader of the Roman Empire. One of the things he's most known for as a ruler is that he built a lot of things. And that's one thing that rulers are often known for, even in the Bible. The the kings of Israel, Ahab. Ahab is a terrible, wicked king. But from a historical point of view, he was a builder. He built great things. Build things, you'll be remembered. Augustus built a lot of things. There's a, a quote that's probably not accurate or true 
uh, but what's attributed to him, that he found Rome a city of bricks and left it a city of marble. Now, marble was used before he came and bricks were used after, but there's some truth in that. The city was a little bit provincial before Augustus. When he died, it was majestic. Rome began its glory under Caesar Augustus. But all these things he did needed money. And he got the money by taxing people. And you get taxes by controlling and knowing where people are, and so they have to register. You have to know how many there are to tax. So that's what he did. Issued a decree, and the various governors around the empire put it into effect. A couple things I want to point out from this that I think are very, very interesting as we relate what Augustus is doing to the coming of the Word. The first is that, (laughs) and we know this, God can use even pagans to accomplish His will. And the second is the folly of self-seeking glory, which we've also seen recently as we went through Daniel. Well, the Old Testament had prophesied in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, that Bethlehem would be the place where the Messiah would come from, where he would be born. Yet Joseph and Mary are up in Galilee, in the town of Nazareth. They're not down in Judea where Bethlehem is. So what did God do? He used Augustus. Augustus thinks he's going to collect a lot of taxes. God says, I need someone to get Joseph and Mary from here to here, and here's how I'm going to do it. And what's interesting to me as well is it would have been seen by virtually every single Israelite in that area as a terrible imposition, a wicked thing that these Gentile Romans are doing to us. How awful it is that they're taxing us, these Gentiles. How awful it is they're making us register. There would have been complaining and condemnation and grumbling. Some of them may have even questioned or even cursed God himself. Why are you allowing this to happen? But they didn't know what we know now. God used Augustus to fulfill prophecy. Just a little reminder that we're no more aware of the workings and plans of God that are going on right now than the Israelites were 2,000 years ago. A little bit of a check on my own spirit and perhaps yours as well not to complain or grumble as much about what's going on. Who knows what God is doing to accomplish His will? Better to walk in faith and to trust God's providential care. God uses pagans to accomplish His will. But there's also the folly of Augustus and his self-seeking glory, which he was doing, definitely seeking glory for himself, while he's building up the Roman Empire, helping to institute the very Pax Romana, while he's improving life and communication and all sorts of things, while he's accumulating titles and honors, being recognized even as a divine son, he was given the title by the Roman Senate, Divi Filius, divine son, because Julius had been made a god. While all this is going on to show and acknowledge Augustus Caesar's glory in the little town in Bethlehem. The real Son of God was being born in very humble, small, 
circumstances. In a little manger, probably in a cave, because there was no room at the inn. Augustus is remembered by a month named after him. But time itself, the very passing of years, is counted as either before Christ or A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. I know academics like to change it to B.C.E., before Common Era, C.E., Common Era. It's still the same year. You can change the name. You can't change the reality. We're counting time from when Jesus was born. Let Augustus have his month. Augustus ushered in the Pax Romana, which in truth didn't last all that long. Jesus brings peace, true peace. Peace between God and man. Peace among men themselves. Peace, as it says in verse 14, among those with whom he is pleased. Peace, as the crowd sang as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Augustus, part of a great empire that rose and fell, but Jesus heads a kingdom that grows and grows and grows and grows and never fails and will last forever. Augustus built up a great city, but if you go to Rome today, most of that that he built is in ruins. It's just an echo of a once glorious past. But Jesus is building an eternal city, the heavenly Jerusalem, and it's coming. And it will be established forever. Caesar Augustus sought glory. He should have been seeking glory in Christ. About whom angels sang his glory at his birth. And about whom saints and angels sing his glory in heaven for all of eternity. We've been learning that in our Revelation study. (laughs) So God can use these pagan Romans, even at the edge of a story, and show the folly of their ambitions compared to what he is doing. The word comes and reveals how stupid the pagans are and how much more glorious God is. Well, then you've got the surrounding people. They're briefly mentioned, so I'll try to discuss them briefly. Verse 18, it says, All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. There are those around us. There are those around us who hear our testimony of the gospel of Jesus, of his offer of salvation, and wonder about the things we tell them. Now in literature, again, a a crowd is usually a way to kind of comment on the story as it's going along. The chorus in Greek mythology or the, the chorus in an opera. Give a clue as to what the author is thinking about what's going on or what people in the story are thinking about what's going on. I want to bring up the crowd here because Luke's going to use the crowd as we progress through this story to tell us about Jesus and to tell us about how people respond to him. Here, their reaction is is just wonder. It's uncertainty. But later on, it will be one of the key ways that Luke shows us the power of the word as it comes, the things it reveals, and how it compels a reaction from those who hear it. But they wonder, angels singing, a child born, what's going on, what is happening? 
Well, Luke's continuing story will answer those questions. But that can be similar for us as we interact with those around us. They may hear the story, they may hear the offer of the gospel, but they may react with wonder, confusion, uncertainty. What do we do? How do we respond? Keep telling the story. (laughs) Keep making the offer. Luke continues his story. We continue ours as well. Continue to call people to repentance and faith. Witnessing can be difficult. It's challenging for those of us who are more introverted or shy. Challenging for those who feel like maybe we don't know the word as well as others. But it's really a simple message. We're all sinners. The wages of sin is death. And life comes through repentance and faith in Christ. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to be the greatest apologist in the world. But we do have to be bold, and so we can pray for boldness. I think a part of it is, is as well, the, the persistence of the widow who finally got her answer in Jesus' story. Sometimes we need to be a persi- persistent witness to those around us as well. Well, moving a little closer into the story, the center of the story, we've got the shepherds. The shepherds are, are the witness to what is going on. And a terribly, terribly unlikely witness. Witness. We've talked about shepherds before, how they are a class of society in this time, looked down upon by others. They do the dirty work. They do the lowly work. And if you've seen how sheep are taken care of, it's disgusting. Things get caught in their wool, and they're not pleasant. They're the garbage collectors of their day. The public bathroom cleaners of their day. Those day laborers you see at Home Depot looking for work. The people that we today see as kind of the lowest of the low. That was the shepherds 2,000 years ago. And yet it is to them, it's to them that the angels bring the glorious word of the birth of a Savior, the promised Messiah. It's to them instructions are given on how to find him. It's to them that the angels appear and sing the glory of God. Imagine in our day today, it's the middle of the night, the garbage collectors are running up and down the street, and it's to them the glorious word comes instead to any of us. God chose the lowly indeed. They get to be the first visitors after Jesus' birth. And yet there's a way in which you and I are very, very much like the shepherds. Lowly and disgusting, not because of our occupation, but because of our sin. Lowly and disgusting in the eyes of a righteous and holy God, and yet despite that lowly estate, to each and every one of us, God has given the good news of a Savior. Despite your sin and your rebellion, God came to you with good news, glorious news, salvation, your sin forgiven, life everlasting. The word came to us, and by God's grace alone, we responded rightly with repentance and faith, the gift of God itself. The shepherds heard, they went, they saw, and we've heard as well. We've seen Jesus. We've seen our Savior. 
We can learn something from the shepherds to also be eager and ready to share the good news of what we've seen and heard and believed. Verse 17 tells us that when they saw it, they made it known. The saying that had been told them concerning the child. Again, you have good news. Don't keep it to yourself. You have a glorious word of salvation that you can share with others. You'll be looked down on. The world around us sees Christians more and more. Just look at the news. They see us more and more like disgusting, lowly shepherds. We're second or third class citizens, and it's becoming more so. So what? We have better news than they do. And we know that God uses the humble and the lowly and the despised of the world to accomplish his purposes. We saw this in Mary's song last week, and we know it from Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. Of course, the shepherds did something else we see in verse 20. They returned to their work, but they returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Now that should be our response, of course, as well. Glorify God. Glorify God for what we've heard and seen Him do in and for us. The chief end of man, exemplified by God's people. How will other people glorify God if we don't set the example? Even if we were silent, the stones themselves would cry out. So the shepherds rejoice. They give glory to God for what they've seen. And what they've seen is at the very center of the story. The baby born to Mary. Joseph, her betrothed. Travelers from Nazareth to Bethlehem. No place at the inn. So the baby Jesus born and laid in a manger in a cave where animals are kept. There's the power of the word again, a virgin conceiving, and the very God of the universe becoming flesh. Meanwhile, in the same regions, shepherds have this amazing amazing experience of an angel appearing to them, the glory of the Lord shining around them, the the word revealing great truth to them. That Messiah you've been waiting for, Israel, you shepherds, That Savior, Christ the Lord, has been born in the city of David. You'll find him wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And this revealing word is accompanied by words of praise and glory from the angelic host. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so to that manger, to Joseph and to Mary and to Jesus, the shepherds come when they'd seen it, when they'd seen what they had heard told to them, they also told it to those around them. We don't have Joseph's reaction to all this, but we do have Mary's in verse 19. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I think that's another wonderful little example or lesson for us. Like Mary, we should be ready to treasure up and ponder the things that we hear from the Word. It's one of the proper ways to respond to the Word that compels us to respond. The glorious Word that compels us to share the good news, the glorious Word also compels us to stop 
to pause in the busyness of life, to treasure up the things that we know, to remember them and ponder them in our hearts. So Mary contemplates all these things that have happened to her and around her and her newborn son. Now, she eventually shares them with others, or Luke wouldn't have known the story, I don't think. But that contemplation, what do you and I have to contemplate? What do you and I have to treasure and store up and remember? Well, God's Word, for sure, we're to read it, we're to remember it, we're to store it up in our heart, we're to learn it, we're to study it. But also, what has God done for you? What has God done around you? How are you saved? Radical conversion from rebellion against God? That's a story. That's something to remember. Raised in the faith by faithful parents, faithful family? Well, that's a story too. God is at work. God was at work for you. However it happened, it's worth thinking about and contemplating and praising God for what he has done for you. How often do we take time to do that? Again, in the busyness and the the franticness of our lives. Maybe when you're out for a walk, driving down the road, listening to music. I think my mom did it when she was out gardening. I do it on my bike. Sometimes I do it while I'm playing the piano. Just stop. Think. What has God done for me? Treasure it. Remember it. You can't help but well up in praise and glory to God for these things. And remembering that story of your own salvation itself becomes a a testimony that's a powerful witness to others. Don't Don't know what to say? Just share what happened to you and what God has done for you. There's other things we can ponder. How have you been blessed? What good things has God done for you in your life? Again, do we ever spend time just to sit and remember and celebrate and recount all the ways in which God has blessed us in our lives? The good things that He has done for you. Good things He has given to you. A home, a family, education, a job, whatever it might be. The older we get, the more we have of those to remember. God has blessed you're, you're an American. God has blessed you. But God has done good things for you. How valuable it is to stop and think and remember and treasure those things. Again, some people it's a diary. Some people it's a record they keep in some way. Treasure these things. Remember them. Store them up. But also the trials of life. We can look back at the ways God has brought us through the the dark valleys of the shadow of death. Sometimes quickly and amazingly, sometimes miraculously, sometimes a long, slow, painful process. Sickness, lack of money, not knowing how you're going to pay the next bill, relationships broken, loss of a job, all these things that can hit us right between the eyes. But God brings us through those things because he promised to, and he does. Stop and ponder. Treasure those things as well. Remember them. 
in your hearts. And again, you can't help but well up in praise and thanksgiving and glorifying God. Again, we're so busy with life, we're so busy with the cares and concerns of the world that we rarely take time to slow down. And I think this is, it's a small little verse, but it's such a wonderful lesson. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Would that we would do the same. Remember and treasure up what God has done for you. Again, that one certain guaranteed response is praise. Glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Or as the people shouted as Jesus went into Jerusalem, remembering the things that God had done for his people, they praised God. Gave him glory in the highest. (coughs) Excuse me. The word is glorious. And our response to it should be glorious. Glorious praise. Ponder these things. Take some time in the next days and weeks to treasure these things up in your heart. And when you do, praise God. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, again, we do give you praise and thanks. We glorify your name for the things that you have done for us. We can see the record of it in your holy word. The ways in which you have blessed and taken care of your people. Throughout time, the promises that you made, the promises that you have kept. But we know it and see it in our own lives as well, whether short or long. You've called us to be your people. You have saved us from our sins. You have blessed us in times of trouble. You have been good to us and blessed us with plenty as well. So teach us to treasure these things and teach us to ponder them rightly in our hearts so that we might burst forth with praise for you. You are a great and glorious and wonderful God. You are our Father, the giver of all good things. We acknowledge that all good things do come from you. We give you the praise and the honor and the glory this morning for these and for many other, but especially for the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.